This is Ryan Welsh, and you can see my strategy for coming into this place is to give the hardest passages to visiting pastors so, so that they can take them for us. No, but I really, I really trust Ryan Welsh was uh, our pastor for two and a half years. He was also my boss. Uh, we were also fellow elders together at Redeemer Church. He's the pastor there, and it's been a church for about five years now. Yep. It depends on who you ask, but yeah, five <laughs> years. Uh, it's going great. We love and miss that place uh, and very thankful for the gospel witness there. Um, Ryan is married to Kate, has two kiddos, Ella and Liam, and Ryan is finishing up a PhD in ethics at Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, and your focus is in gender and sexuality, is that correct? Okay, yeah. so just, if you have any questions, he's the guy, okay? So come to, if, you, if you have things that you want to talk about in relation to Christianity and, and worldview stuff, and then gender and sexuality, uh, I really trust Ryan. So thanks for being here, brother. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. I don't know if you had a choice in the matter uh, for having me, but still, thank you. It's, it's good to be here. Um, I, uh, I was a, a, an honorary Beaver fan for about seven or eight years. You're welcome. And, and, and what I mean by that is uh, I'm from Seattle. I'm a, I'm a Husky fan. Yeah, I know. Um, and, but, but what happened was my, my first ministry job was at a church in Newburgh, Oregon. It was called First Baptist Church. Now it's called Grace Baptist Church. And there's a, there's a family, and this is kind of funny because the family, Jim and Vicki Cooper, just, I just saw them during the, the family time. They're here. So, hi, Coopers. Uh, I, I was going to tell the story whether you're here or not, but it's cool that you're here. Um, uh, season ticket holders for uh, Beaver football, right? And so they would bring me all the time. So I was a Beaver fan unless they were playing the Huskies. And then I was a Husky fan. But what was interesting is I would wear all Beaver apparel. I mean, I looked like a true Beaver fan. I was faking completely. Um, but I, I did root for them when they played anybody. But I'm sitting in, the, in like the season ticket holder section, if there's even a section, all Beaver fans. But when they played UW here at home, I would wear my purple and gold, and I got heckled quite a bit. Uh, but anyways, all that being said, it's good to be back in Corvallis. I haven't been here for I don't know how long, but I have fond memories of tailgating here and, and going into research, still called research, I'm guessing. Yep, okay, great. Um, uh, we're going to be in First Peter. You guys have been in First Peter for uh, at least several weeks. I'm not sure exactly how long. And we're going to continue in First Peter. We heard the scripture reading. We're going to be in First Peter 4, verses 1 through um, 11. Uh, we at Redeemer Church in, in Bellevue, we are going through the book of Exodus right now, and we're going through the whole thing. We're th today, pa Pastor Gabe at our church is preaching, and it's our 15th week in Exodus, and it's going to be a total of about 34 weeks, so I don't know what that, I don't, I'm not a math guy, but like a third through it or something like that, and so it's really, I love the book of Exodus, I love preaching in the Old Testament, but this week studying for New Testament, it's, it's refreshing. Right, because it's just so it's just so clear. It's so forward. Like Peter said, this. You're not reading a narrative and trying to figure out. Okay, what is this? So it's very refreshing. So thank you for, thank you for. Yeah, it's it's very refreshing. Um, what we need to do is this uh, before we we get into the text. Uh, many of you know this, and so I don't want to assume that you're ignorant towards this. Uh, maybe this is just review for you. But for those of you who don't know this, I think it's important to say. Um, when we're studying through a book of the Bible from beginning to end, it's very important that we keep the whole thing in context. Okay? You, many of you know this. It's, it's very important. But, but churches like ours, the Branch and Redeemer, when we go through books of the Bible beginning to end, the danger in it, although it is, the, I think, the right thing to do, the danger is that we can lose sight of the whole as we go slowly through a book. 
many of you have heard the, the parable of the blind men and the elephant, right? Many of you have heard that before. Um, the way the story goes is a group of blind men uh, heard, at least six of them, I guess, they, they heard that an elephant was coming into town. This is an ancient story. And so the, the, the blind man went and to, to observe the elephant. They can't see, so they went. And what happened is, is, is all of the men, as they went up and they felt different parts of the elephant, they have different interpretations of what an elephant is, right? So, so the, the blind man that went and he just grabbed a hold of the trunk, his view of an elephant was this thing is like a thick snake. An elephant is like a thick snake. The, the one that grabbed the ear said this is like a fan of some sort. Um, the one that grabbed the leg said this is like a, a, a big pillar. An elephant's like a pillar. Uh, the fourth one touched the side and said, this is like a wall. And the, the fifth one grabbed the, the tail and said, this is like a rope, right? And, and then the sixth one grabbed the tusk and said, this is like a hard, smooth spear, right? So all of them had a different view of what an elephant was because they didn't have the context of the whole. Now, when we study scripture, we're not like the blind men, but what we're like if we're not careful is it's like walking into a dark room and having a, a, very, a very focused uh, uh, flashlight and just looking at today 11 verses and not looking at the rest. We're kind of like the blind men. We lose sight of the whole. Okay, why do I say this today? Because did you hear the passage read? You heard that, okay? This is a passage of do's and don'ts, right? There, there, there's do this and there's don't do this. If we're not careful we can turn these passages into a whole bunch of morality and lose sight of the gospel altogether. Amen? So we got to be careful, okay? Now, luckily, Peter, in this text, he, get, he helps us because he has two therefores in the passage. And you guys, you guys are smart people, right? When you see a therefore, what do you ask? What's it there for, right? You guys know how it works, okay? When you see a therefore, you ask, what's it there for? And, and, and this helps, right? So in this passage, in verse 1, Peter says, therefore. And in verse 7, Peter says, therefore. And so this helps us to understand that he's, he's commanding these things based on something that we've already learned, a reality that we've already learned in the book, okay? Um, first Peter is 105 verses. Today we're doing 11 uh, Peter is 16, first Peter is 1684 words. Today we're doing 252, okay? About a tenth of the book today. We need to keep this in context. Um, many people, maybe some of you, your view of Christianity, maybe you're not a Christian, your view of Christianity is uh, Christians are people that try to live really good lives and they think they're superior to everyone else because they live a better life. Okay, if you're a Christian and you're somewhat uh, honest with yourself, you know that's false. Not only biblically, but you've seen, you've looked in the mirror. You realize you're not better than anyone else. You realize that even though you, you claim Christ and, and you are a Christian and he died for you on the cross, that you, even your life, uh, is full of sin. And you still follow the passions of your heart all the time, which is, praise God, the tomb is empty. And we are still forgiven of sin, even though we continue to sin. But because that is such a common view of Christianity, that's about morals, this is why we need to be careful and why I love that Peter gave us the therefores, okay? Verses one through six, we have don'ts. And I'm gonna call these reality-based don'ts. And then verses seven through 11, we have reality-based do's, okay? Do's and don'ts. All right, let's go ahead and start. First uh, Peter four, verses one through three. Since therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
for the time is for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Okay, so you see, you see the don'ts. Okay, you see the don'ts. However, the first thing Peter says, first two words, at least in my translation, the ESV says, since, therefore. Okay, so, so what he's saying, these don'ts are based on something he previously said. Since, therefore, and then the next, uh, what is that, five words, Christ suffered in the flesh. Based on the reality that Christ, the historical event that Christ died on the cross for our sin, for those who are in Christ, based on that event, that reality, therefore, we are to live a certain way, okay? We are not saved by our works. Just so everyone's clear, you're not saved by not living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You're not saved by that, amen? This is good news for us, right? Because if we were saved by this, we're all doomed, okay? Based on the fact that Christ suffered and died in the flesh, based on that reality, we are to live a certain way. Now, um, he doesn't just say, because Christ died, live this way. There's actually one part in between those two, and it's here in the text, and it's kind of confusing, okay? So I'm going I'm to try to explain it. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin. Okay, so question. Is Peter trying to say that Jesus ceased from sinning because he suffered in the flesh? Do we believe that Jesus sinned ever? Okay, he, he, was, he was the sinless, spotless lamb. If Jesus sinned, his death on our behalf was not beneficial for us. He had to be sinless to die for our sin and give us his righteousness. He had to be sinless. Okay? So Peter here cannot be saying, because Jesus suffered and died on the cross, therefore he ceased to sin. So it has to be the people Peter's writing to, somehow, when they suffer with Christ, they cease to sin. How are we doing? Okay, that's the first step. We're not done. That's the first step. How many of you feel like you've ceased from sinning? It should be zero. Or you're delusional. It's zero. Okay. So what is Peter trying to say? Those who have suffered have ceased from sin. Confusing. I think the best way to understand this is to read a passage uh, from Paul in Romans 6. Um, verses uh, 5 through 11. Now, Romans 6 is a very difficult passage. We went through the book of Romans. Uh, the pains were, were at Redeemer when we did this. We took about a little over a year and went through the whole book of Romans. And Romans 6 is the hardest chapter in Romans. You guys ever heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones? Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, a famous preacher. He's, he, he's uh, historic. He's not alive anymore. And somebody, I, he had been in ministry for like 20-something years, and somebody once asked him, when are you going to preach through Romans? And his answer was, when I understand Romans 6, I'll preach through the book of Romans. We got a similar question at Redeemer. We're only five years old. But after like year one, we had people going, when are you going to do Romans? Seriously? Like we just started, the, the, right? We're new. So I gave them the same reason. I told the church in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, I said, when I understand Romans 6, we'll go through Romans. I lied, though, because we preach Romans, and I still don't quite understand Romans 6. However, I think what Peter's saying in this text is the same thing Paul's saying in Romans 6. Okay, here it goes. Uh, Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
meaning Christ, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, time out really quick. Um, what Paul is saying is, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you believe that Jesus is Savior, that he died on your behalf, that we've been given his righteousness and he's taken our sin, if you believe that, then what he's saying is you have died with Christ. You have a new identity. Your old self is dead just as Christ died in the flesh. Does that make sense? As much as it can? Okay. We are now new creations, 1 Corinthians tells us, okay? So we have died with Christ. That's our identity. We've died with him in our sinful flesh, okay, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, which we have, we believe that we will also live with him. We, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay, here it is. What's the application to this? Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If I were teaching a class right now, I'd say, who wants to explain this? Am I going to do that? You're welcome. Am I going to do that? What Paul's saying, and, and, and maybe some of you might, have, might know this, Paul throughout his epistles, he keeps saying, he describes Christians not as Christians, that's not the title. He describes Christians as those who are in Christ. You read the book of Ephesians, right? A lot of it's in Christ. We are in him. We're in Christ. Meaning, our identity is we are found in Christ, okay? So what Paul's trying to say in Romans 6 is, just as Christ died, because our identity is now in him, because we believe in him, because our, his blood has covered our sin, now we've also died to our sin. It doesn't mean you cease to sin, if you haven't noticed. What it means is, it's as if we don't sin anymore because it's not counted against us. Amen? So, now live like you're dead to sin. Make sense? Okay, back to 1 Peter 4. Some of you might say, I don't think that's what 1 Peter 4 is saying. Pastor Doug, who is this guy? Why did you bring this guy? I think 1 Peter 2, Peter says this. So, so a couple chapters ago, I, I think Peter already said this, okay? And here's what 1 Peter 2.24 says. He himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, here we go, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed, okay? I think that's what Peter's trying to say. Okay, so back to 1 Peter 4. I'm going to read 1 through 3, or just 1, actually. I'm just going to read verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Okay, how should we think? Here it is. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What should we think as Christians? Sin does not have dominion over me. I can actually obey. That's, how, that's the way we're supposed to think. Now, will we cease to sin this side of eternity? No. But we don't have to sin. We don't have to give in to our desires. We can actually, by the help of the Holy Spirit, say no to sin, okay? Think about these things. Reassure yourself that you are dead to sin. You are in Christ. He has won the victory for you. That's what he's saying. Okay, that's just verse one. That's the hardest one. Okay, that's the hardest one in the whole passage, I promise. 
Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Think this way. For you have also suffered in the flesh, I'm paraphrasing, because you're in Christ, and you've ceased from sin. Meaning, you're not identified by a sinner anymore. You're identified as being a new creation. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. My daughter is, Pastor Doug mentioned I have, I have two kids. I have a 10-year-old daughter and I have a 7-year-old son. My 10-year-old daughter's name is Ella. And she's in fifth grade, and I, I, I don't know how it is in Corvallis, but, but where we live, sixth grade is middle school. And that's a really scary thought that my little girl is in middle school next year. Because I remember me in middle school, and the way I thought, and the way I talked, and I just can't, it, it's hard to... Um, what I tell Ella on a regular basis, though, is this. Some of you will recognize this. Some of you are, are young people. It's dark in the back. I don't know if we have not young people. I see a lot of young people right here, okay? Um, but you remember hearing this. And for you parents, you said this. I'm sure you did. When Ella acts like she's not 10, what do I tell her? Ella, you're 10. Act like it, right? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, you are redeemed in Christ. You are a new creation. Act like it. That's all he's saying easy <laughs> except for the acting it out part right but 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 it's a simple concept we're saved act like it that's all he's saying now, now question when my daughter ceases to act 10 do i then knock her down ages do i go you know what forget it you're now eight <laughs> you're going down to you're going from fifth grade to third grade i'll talk to your teachers you're not acting 10 so you're no longer 10 no, no, and see, we need to be careful. When we talk about not acting as Christians that we are, it doesn't mean like you lose your salvation, you're no longer a Christian because you don't live faithful enough. No, no, no. You're in Christ. You're saved. You're eternally secure, even when you don't look like a Christian. So it's just like, my, you, she doesn't cease to be 10. She's just not acting in conformity with how old she actually is. We as Christians, when we sin, we're quite literally not acting like what we are. Make sense? Clear as mud, I'm sure. I think it's important to recognize that there's no busy work in scripture. For you college students, we all feel the same way about busy work, don't we? You wonder, is my professor, is my teacher giving me this work because they're mean, um, because they want to punish us? Does this have any benefit whatsoever? Why, why do I have to do these things? And I'm a, I'm a college professor. I'm a I, Corbin University. I don't know if you've heard of it in Salem, Oregon. I, I, I've taught there for many years, and, and I get accused of this from my students sometimes. They're wrong. That's not why I give it, but I understand the sentiment. I get it. I was in school. I, I get it. Scripture has no busy work. None of the commands in Scripture are, just do it because I said so. None of it. It's all for a purpose. There's always a reality behind the command. Always. Some of you have heard these words, and, and, and some of you haven't. This is what we call in, uh, an indicative and an imperative. Some of you have heard this, okay? Even in English, though we don't use these words that much, even in English, we have these kinds of verbs, okay? An indicative is just saying something that's true. Just saying something that's true. There are, I don't know, 150 people in the room. I'm just saying something that's true. 
That's an indicative. An imperative is a command, okay? There are 150 people in the room. Therefore, I don't know. I don't know. I just made it up on the spot. I should have had something written down. I don't know. <laughs> How about this? The light is red, in indicative. Therefore, stop. Do you see that? Indicative, imperative. Okay? Scripture gives imperatives, commands, right? Unfortunately, a lot of people view Scripture as only commands. No. But always in Scripture, there's, there's an, imp an indicative and then an imperative. There's always a reason why we do the things we do. Okay? Someone's sitting in the front seat with you. There's no red light. There's no light at all. You're on an open road, and they just say, stop. Why? There's no reason to stop. That's not Scripture. There's no naked imperatives is what we'd call them. They always have indicatives with them. Since Christ died, since we believe, since we're found in him, since we've been redeemed, since we're new creations, verse three, don't live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I love that Peter mentions lawless idolatry at the end because that just covers everything else. All sin is idolatry. All sin is putting something above God. Idolatry is when you worship something, when you give something worth and value above God. The thing that you ultimately value is what you worship. Any sin we commit is putting something above God. Any sin. So I love at the end here, he just says, and anything else you can possibly think of. Stop doing those things too. Based on what? Based on the reality that you're in Christ. You're a new creation. Live like that which you are. This is living in light of reality. I want to say this as well. Obeying God is never for the purpose of payback. God died for me. I better live for him. I owe him. No, I mean, yes, but you can't pay him back. What are you going to do? You can't pay him back. He didn't ask you to pay him back. When you tried to pay him back, when I tried to pay him back, he says, what do you think I died for? He didn't ask us to pay him back. So when, when, when we have the commands, it's not to pay him back, and the commands, I've already said this, are not for salvation, Okay. They're to live in light of what we actually are. But there's another thing. And I've been talking with Redeemer a ton about this lately. I think they're getting sick of this. Uh, Pastor Doug mentioned I'm, a, I'm an ethics. Uh, I'm doing a PhD in ethics right now. Which typically scares people. They're like, I don't want to talk to that guy. He's got to be boring. Ethics. Horrible. Um, one of the things I'm struck by, and, and, and I, I think two years ago before I started, I didn't understand this quite as much, is is when, when God commands things, when, when scripture commands things like don't do these things, it's not just because we are in Christ so act like what you are, but it's also good for us to obey scripture. You guys believe that? It's actually good for us. And I think we forget that. I know I do. Every time we sin as Christians, what we're saying is, God, I know what's good for me. I know you say this, but I, I know me better than you know me, God. You only created me. I'm me. I know better what's good for me. Every time we sin, it's, it's, it's us saying, I ultimately know what's good for me. Any philosophy majors in here? Good. So if I butcher the story, you won't call me out on it. I'm really glad there's no philosophy majors. Okay. Any philosophy fans in here? Okay, good. Um, I like philosophy a lot. There's a story, Plato. You guys heard of Plato? Plato, not Plato. Plato. He told a story called the Euthyphro. Some of you have heard of this. And the Euthyphro story is, it's a, it's a he, Plato always wrote in dialogues. And so he used Socrates, who was his teacher. He used Socrates as his 
uh, one of his dialogue partners, okay? So he wrote the story, it's a long story, so I'll spare you most of the details, but anyways, what happens is Socrates is talking to a young man named Euthyphro, and they're getting into an argument of how they can know what's right and wrong. And what, so what Socrates asks Euthyphro is this. He says, to, to try to, to persuade Euthyphro that he can't really know what's right and wrong, it's subjective, it's not objective, he says this, he says, Euthyphro, does God command things because they're good? Or are they good because God commands them? Some of you go, this is why I hate philosophy. <laughs> and some of you, maybe you, this is why you like philosophy. So, so here's the question, and I think we struggle with this as Christians. Here's, here's the question. Does God command things because they're good? Or are they good because he commands them? Okay, so some of you are like, I know the answer. You might not. Because if you pick either of those two, you're wrong. Because both of those are really bad options. And, and here's why they're both bad options. Be, Plato is not a Christian. He didn't have a Bible open. He's wrong on both of these. There's a third option. The third option is the right option, biblically speaking. The first option is, does God command things because they're good? Well, the problem with that is that that's true in a sense. Didn't I just say that? That his commands are good for us? So it's true in a sense. But here's the implication. If God's only telling us what's good for us, but he's not the source of the goodness, then he's just some sort of a divine meteorologist telling us like, hey, this is good. I, I, somebody else I know is good from somebody else. There's some other standard of truth, and I'm just telling you in my word what's good for you, but I'm not the standard of that. That's a bad option because God is the standard. Okay? The other option is, I think, where a lot of Christians are. It's good because God commands it, meaning they're arbitrary. God is this angry dictator, right, standing over an anthill with a magnifying glass on a sunny day, just waiting to zap us, right? And he's, he's mean. He doesn't want us to have fun. He's a cosmic killjoy. And he, 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 so he commands these things to, to, to burden us. And his commands are arbitrary. He just, they're good only because he said they're good. It's neither of those two. God commands what's good for us, but it's good for us because of the way God created us. God in himself is good. Therefore, his commands are good. Both options are bad. But here's the deal. The deal is, I think, my conviction is, we struggle. We, we, we don't believe this usually. When we read God's commands, commands, we don't usually say, these are good for me. They're just something I have to do. So, do you believe that? Do you believe in verse 3, sensuality? Which, by the way, sensuality um, covers a whole bunch of sins. Passions, the next one, the word there means um, your passion. It's almost like coveting. It's like passions for other people's stuff. Okay? So, let's say coveting. Okay? Is coveting good for you? Is it good for the one that you're coveting? Okay? Good. Uh, drunkenness. Is that good for you? Do good things or bad things happen when you get drunk? I've never heard somebody say, I got drunk. I'm so glad I did it. Really good things came out of that. I look back on that night, and my whole life changed for the better because of that night. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Orgies. Um, is it good or is it bad for us to be in a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship, and that is our sexual relationship. Is that good for us, or is that bad for us? Good. It's actually good for us, okay? God's not just trying to be mean. Drinking parties, that goes with the drunkenness one. Um, for you college students, you know what those are. Lawless idolatry. Is it good for us to put anything above God and worship it? No, because whatever we ultimately put in the place of God and we worship it, it will always fail us because it's not God. It will never satisfy us, right? So God's commands are actually good for us. <sighs> okay, I need to go. I need to move on. Um, 
I told Pastor Doug I would try to be done on time, and we're only through the first three verses. <laughs> skip that, skip that, skip that. Uh, verses four and five. Verses four and five. Um, with respect to this, actually, let me say this first. You guys know that you're going to be seen as freaks when you obey God's word. Have you noticed? Some of you are here, you're not a Christian, and you're like, yeah, I'm amongst freaks right now. They're weird. That's why I don't usually come here, because they're weird. Okay, that's what Peter's going to say. He's going to say, by the way, when you do this, when you obey, you're weird. You're not. You're the one living in line with reality, but you're going to be seen as weird because everyone else is not living in light of reality. Okay, now we're done. With respect to this, they, meaning like the world, are surprised when you do not join them in this same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead now the word malign there literally the greek word is is blasphemy they, they will blaspheme you which means they will with their words try to harm you some of you go yep yep i have friends they want me to do everything with them i don't do these things and they get mad at me and i don't know why I, well i don't know why either i don't know your friends but a lot of times the reason why is because they feel like you're judging them when you don't go do what they do. We need to be careful the way we communicate this to our friends, why you don't want to go, okay? Different sermon, but we're weird to the world when we obey. When we disobey these things, we're, we fit in with the world. But what, what, what Peter's saying here is there will be judgment. Everyone will go through judgment. Everyone, you and I. However, for those in Christ, Christ was judged. For those who aren't in Christ, they will be judged. Patience. Don't get revenge. God's in control. Verse 6. This is, verse 6 is also one that's kind of hard to understand. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Um, Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the verse, verse 6 again, and I'm going to give you a paraphrase to help you understand what the Greek is saying here, okay? Because I, I know it's kind of confusing. Here we go. Verse 6. Okay, you ready? For this is why the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, but it was preached to them when they were alive. They're dead now. They were Christians. Okay, that's my paraphrase. Keep going. That though judged in the flesh, they were killed. They were persecuted and they were killed for being Christians. You guys have been here for a bit of First Peter. You know this is all about suffering, persecution, right? These are persecuted people, a fleeing people. They're being persecuted for their faith, okay? It, verse 6 is describing people who are Christians. They've been persecuted because of their obedience, their faith. They've been persecuted. They've been killed, okay? Keep going. For though judged in the flesh the way people are, they've died, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here's what it's saying. Even your brothers and sisters who have lived for Christ and been seen as weird and bizarre and judged, even to the point of dying for their faith, they're with Christ. They're with Christ because they've been preached to and they believe. This was a common belief in the first century. Many Christians believe they stand up for their faith, and they're killed. And it, there was a lot of confusion. What does this mean? I thought we were going to be okay. There was a lot of what I might call, you guys heard of prosperity theology? Okay. Okay, like if you're obedient, good things will happen to you. Well, even in the first century, that was a false belief, right? If we just believe in Jesus, things will be really well. Well, read First Peter. 
It's not the way it went, right? Jesus said, because they hate me, they'll hate you, right? So, so, so there was this belief that, man, things are going to get better if we just act in faith. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, because of this very same concern, he's trying to convince the Thessalonians that those brothers and sisters in Christ who have died are saved. They're not just like, they, 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 they stood firm and this is a good thing. They're with Jesus now. So here's what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. What he goes on to say is, they're with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They didn't suffer in vain. He's trying to encourage them here. Yeah, you're weird. They think you're weird. Even if you suffer, it's okay. You'll be with Christ. I hope that you've seen in this first section the reality-based don'ts. I hope that you've seen the difference between morality and Christianity. Morality is, I do things so Jesus will love me. Christianity is, Jesus loves me, and now I do these things. I hope you see the significance of the difference. I've been a pastor for about 15 years, and the biggest issue I see in counseling is people that are not secure in their salvation, and they doubt. And they say, well, pastor, you say that, that, that because I believe in Jesus, I'm saved, but, but you don't know what I do. You don't know the thoughts that I have. This ruins people because they're not secure in their faith. If you are a believer, you are secure, and with that confidence, that can be your motive for living for Christ because you can't lose it. Number two, first one was reality-based don'ts. Here we go, reality-based do's, okay? Reality-based do's, verses four through seven. Four through seven, seven through 11. First Peter four, seven through 11. The end of all things is at hand. What's the next word? There it is, okay, there's the second therefore, okay? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep Loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see the second therefore. Don't do these things because Christ died for you. You're in Christ. You don't need to. His commands are good for you. That's why don't do these things. And then here, do these things. Why? Because the end is at hand. And just so you don't think this is like, so are we supposed to hold signs on campus that says, repent, the end is coming? Is this what this means? No. Don't do that. Don't do that. What, 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 what this means is not necessarily that the end, meaning Christ coming back, is like ha- going to happen right now. This was written 2,000 years ago. It's been a while. Christ hasn't come back. What this means is the end, the end of things is at hand. What it means is this. Jesus has won. Our salvation is secure. We know the truth. We know who wins. No matter what happens on the earth, this earth, we know the end of the story. You guys ever watched a movie more than once? The second time you watch it, if it's like a, like a suspense movie, are you quite as nervous the second time you watch it? <laughs> Some are, probably. Some are like, no, I still am. You know the end's not going to change, right? So I know some people that even read the end of books 
Anybody? You read the end of books before you read the beginning because you don't want the suspense. You want to know what happens. Okay, church, we know the end of the story, don't we? Jesus wins. Satan's defeated. Those in Christ are resurrected and live in eternity with their creator. Amen? We know the end of the story. Based on that confidence, do these things. Okay? Based on that, do these things. Here's why I think Peter can say this. Because if we believe that our eternity is secure, then what it means is we already have everything we need. Okay? We have everything we need. We don't need to keep looking for satisfaction. We're satisfied in Christ. Amen? We don't need to look for glory. We give glory to Christ. Right? We don't, we don't need to try to be satisfied in earthly things because we can't. If you've read Ecclesiastes recently, nothing satisfies. Only Christ satisfies. Only our creator can provide what he created us to find satisfaction in. Okay? So based on us being satisfied in Christ, we don't need to live for ourselves anymore. We can actually live for others and live for God because we don't need the glory. We don't need the satisfaction outside of God. We can stop living for ourselves. The most satisfied person is usually the most generous person. The person that's full is usually the one that's most generous to give away food. The person who's hot is the most generous person to give their coat away, right? They have what they need. They, they don't need it. They don't need to hoard it. We know the end. We know the end of the story. We can now live selflessly, which is what he's talking about here, loving one another, showing hospitality, using our gifts to serve others, not ourselves. This is all based on the reality that we know the end of the story. I think, my, myself included, I think that most of the time, us Christians, when we serve other people, when we do things that look Christian, there's at least a little bit of wrong motive behind it. Some of you are like, man, you're negative. You've been negative since the beginning of this sermon. I know. I think I'm right, though. Obviously, or I wouldn't have said it. I think Scripture calls us sinners. I think Scripture says that no one deserves... I think Scripture actually is, it serves as a mirror to show us how sinful we actually are. I believe that when we do good, quote, good things to serve people, to serve the church, I think that usually in that, there's impure motives. Maybe there's good motives too, but usually there's impure motives. And what I mean by that is this. When you do them, do you do them so people see that you're doing them? Do you do them that, so people go, man, she's really nice. Man, look how she serves. Or look at his gifts. Man, he's so gifted. Okay, why do you do the things you do? Even the things that look really godly, why do you do those things? If we have everything we need, if we don't need any more satisfaction, we have Christ, we don't any longer need to live for ourselves at all. Now, I know what you're thinking. Ryan, that's ridiculous. We can't do that. I know. I get it. You will fail. I will fail. But that's the command. Do. Reality-based, you have everything you need. Do these things. Love one another. Be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What that means is this. Um, when you know the end of the story, when you know Jesus is on the throne, when you know he's totally in control, he's totally sovereign, he's all-loving, don't you want to talk to him? Don't you want to ask him for help? Don't you want to thank him for what he gives you? This is all reality-based. 
So the three things that he says is love, show hospitality, and use your gifts for others. And because of time, I'm, I'm, I wish I could go for that. I spent a lot of time on reality-based don'ts, didn't I? Once again, negative. I talked about the don'ts more than the do's, right? Um, love, hospitality, using your gifts for others. Uh, love is the umbrella that covers all these things. Hospitality is actually this, this interesting word. Um, hospitality is a mix between two words. Um, love and stranger. Hospitality is not having your friends over. <laughs> That's not hospitality. Hospitality is loving the stranger. That's what that means. And in this context, it means loving your persecutor. How can you, how can you love your persecutor? Well, when you have everything you need, you can love your persecutor. Using our gifts for others, whether it's teaching or serving, reality-based. We have a new identity. We're a part of a new family. We can live for the kingdom now. And what's our motive? That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So I apologize for having to go quickly on that last part, but I want to end with this. Um, you guys heard of John Owen before? Some of you heard of John Owen? John Owen is a 17th century English theologian. And he said toward the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, he, after reflecting on his many, many decades of, of, of pastoral ministry, he said, there's really only two pastoral responsibilities. There's only two things pastors have to do. <laughs> That's encouraging to me, Doug. I still blow it. There's really only two things pastors have to do. Number one is this. Number one is persuading those under the dominion of sin that they are under the dominion of sin. Evangelism. Anyone in here today who's not a believer, I don't want you to leave here confident. I want you to leave, to leave here knowing that you are under the dominion of sin, meaning you're in sin, you will pay for your sin because your sin has not been covered by the blood of the lamb on the cross. Jesus Christ died to save sinners, those who believe in him, those who have faith in him. He covers their sin by grace, no work, only by his work, through faith. The only thing we contribute to salvation is the sin that made salvation necessary. That's it. Christ did everything else. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I don't want you to leave confident that you're fine because we're not saved by morality. No. Your lack of morality is only proof that you need a savior, that you need forgiveness, or judgment does await. Either you will be judged or Christ was judged for you. Those are the two options. So the first pastoral responsibility, according to John Owen, is this, persuading those who are under the dominion of sin that they are under the dominion of sin. Some of you are guessing what number two is. Number two, persuading those who are not under the dominion of sin that they are not under the dominion of sin. Amen? If you're a believer and you're, you're here this morning, I, I want you to leave encouraged and confident that you are not what you were before Christ. Even when you look in the mirror and you look at your life and you go, man, I'm still a sinner. Of course you are. You're still in the flesh. Of course you are. But you are a new creation. You are not under the dominion of sin. You are a new person. When God the Father looks at you, he sees his son's righteousness. Amen? He does not see sinner when he looks at you because his son paid the price for you. Jesus took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. The great exchange. 
Do you believe that? If you're a Christian, do you believe that when the Father looks at you, he sees his son's righteousness? That is the reality that's going to motivate us to live for Christ now. Any other motivation is either, is either selfish or it's legalistic. You're either doing it for yourself or you're doing it to gain God's standing. Church, you cannot gain any more standing than you've been given in Christ. It doesn't matter what sin you did last night. It doesn't matter how much you've judged the person in this room since we've been here. It doesn't matter the unrepentant sin you have. Jesus, the Father, is as pleased with you now as he was the day he saved you. Therefore, live in that reality. Amen? Let's pray.